This is episode 60 of the 99 Forever podcast. I'm Eric Friesen, and my guest tonight is making his second appearance on the podcast and his first in more than a year. He's the co-host of Straight Off the Pipe and a contributor for HeavyHockey.com, Mike Dashney, a.k.a. Dash in the Park. Dash, welcome back to the show. Well, thanks for having me. Thanks. Appreciate it. Yeah, man. You know, we've got a long way to go to catch up to uh, your number of appearances on Michael's podcast, but at least this is a good start. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what did I just finish off number 33 or something like that? I don't know if I've caught you yet, though. There might be, uh, we've probably got a good 60 or 70 between us. Yeah, no kidding. I, I, you know, Michael and I have joked about that before that we need to go back and count all of our uh episodes together back to 2018 so it's probably around there you might actually have me beat though well who knows no one's ever gonna have the time to go back and count anyways uh but i just appreciate the really lavish expensive really expensive gifts he sends after being a guest is really he's just such a generous guy <laughs> oh yeah i i haven't received any of those myself oh Oh, that's awkward. Yeah, they're, they're what I tell you. My mailbox is can I can barely contain it. I maybe just you know, oh, Michael. You know, just they're just so expensive. I He's love just it. extra giving at the the holiday season, right? <laughs> All the year through. <laughs> oh, there you go. Um, so we'll, we'll get into some Oilers talk in a bit, but first I wanted to talk about the heavy hockey minute that you made to preview the Battle of Alberta earlier this week, and. I think it's the best one we've ever done for the site for a few reasons. First off, you recorded it in Disneyland, and that alone <laughs> probably puts it at the top. Uh, but you also included some clips of Connor McDavid's series-winning goal against the Flames last spring, as well as a scene from Slapshot. So for anyone who hasn't seen it, I encourage them to go watch it on our YouTube channel. Uh, I just want to ask, did you have that planned ahead of time, or was this just something you came up on the spot with? I did that one off the cuff, to be honest. The only credit I'm going to give away is to my brother-in-law because he was the one who was making fun of Johnny Goudreau or Mr. Hockey being on the teacups. So I have to give him credit. He he made me laugh when he said it, and I said, oh, I'm going to use that one. Um, but yeah, no, you know what? It's pretty easy to to do that when you're you know in the, the place that's made of fun and magic and Disneyland uh, brings the best out of everybody. So it was, it was fun to do um, a little bit annoying to do because uh, it was about three takes only because it is impossible, impossible to find 60 seconds of quiet at Disneyland. Yeah, I, I believe it. And, and you know, that's awesome, man. I, I'm a big Disney fan myself. I love Disneyland. I've been there five times. Uh, what's your favorite ride at the park? Oh, you know, this time we really honestly focused on on the kids that we had with us. So, you know, there was just a lot of um, teacups and and balloon rides and that sort of thing. We got on the carousel three times. Um, but a while back, I went to Disney World. And maybe you're aware that there's nine different parks there, if you count the water yeah. parks and the marble parks. And we booked a 10-day trip. And just two of us did nine parks in 10 days. And the 10th day was for rest. We just lay beside the pool and melted and did, I think at that time, the count was 27 roller coasters across the seven parks. And we did 26 of them. The only one we couldn't finish off was the Aerosmith rock and roll roller coaster. It was the last roller coaster on the last day. And it was a two and a half hour lineup and we just tapped out. We couldn't do it. <laughs> yeah. No, that, I, I believe it. That sounds, that sounds, uh, 
like it would be a, a long trip going there for 10 days. But uh, I mean, I'll, I'll go with uh, Space Mountain, Indiana Jones and the Matterhorn as my top three rides at Disneyland. Uh, like I said, I've, I've been uh, to I'm more of a California guy. So I've been to Disneyland, like I said, a, a lot of times I've never been to Disney World. I, I want to check it out. One of the things that I've heard that's a little different there, though, is, you know, when you're in Disneyland, the park is right across the street from all the hotels. Whereas I think you have to take a shuttle bus to get to the parks at Disney world in Orlando. Yeah. Sheer mass alone. I mean, it's, you know, it's just spread out there. It's probably 10 times the size. (laughs) So by the time, you know, you've gone to Epcot and then animal kingdom and then, you know, so on and so forth and mix it up and go to a water park to blizzard beach or typhoon lagoon. You've, you know, you've been, it feels like halfway across Florida state. So yeah, there's a lot of traveling around, but that's why we did it the way we did one park a day. We still averaged about fifteen to twenty thousand steps every single day. So there's no way you yeah. could do it. But we were troopers. Yeah, you're getting your exercise in there for sure. Uh how long were you in Anaheim? And I think you went to Hawaii too as well, right? Yeah, we went to Kauai for ten days and then topped it off the two weeks with uh four days in Anaheim just to get kids and the nieces over to Disneyland. So it was fun. Kauai was beautiful. First time to Hawaii. Just absolute paradise. Let's see what they say. Oh man, you're you're making me uh, wish I was there. I I've never been to Hawaii. Uh, I have been to Mexico a few times. I love it there. So anywhere with a beach, you know, uh, it doesn't take uh, much to sell me on that. Um, was this also your little guy's first time at Disneyland? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So that was that was the fun in it for me. I was just living vicariously through him. <laughs> and how did he like it? What was what was uh, his uh, first time there like? Uh, pretty overwhelming for the most part, I think, but, uh, uh, in a rain for the second half of the day. So he was, you know, proved to me how tough he is. Cause I think he did less whining than I did. <laughs> Ultimately, uh, Autotopia was what he had the funnest five oh, yeah. minutes of his yeah. life on. Yeah. I'd never, I couldn't, I just couldn't get that smile off his face for 20 minutes. He was just absolutely enamored with that one. Anything oh, where he sure. can drive, that, he's pretty funny. Yeah, and I'm sure that he'll be asking in the next uh, year or two, like, when are we going back? Oh, 15 years, kid. <laughs> <laughs> well, man, I'm glad you had a great vacation. And, uh, you know, it's uh, it's always a good time at the happiest place on earth. And Oilers fans sure were happy after an important win over their provincial rivals on Tuesday night as well. Tyson Berry scored his 100th career NHL goal. Connor McDavid tallied his league-leading 31st goal of the season, and Stuart Skinner made 46 saves as the Edmonton Oilers won the game and the season series against the Calgary Flames 2-1. Dash, I think we have to start by talking about Skinner. He had a bit of a tough outing against the Vancouver Canucks before the Christmas break, but he bounced back with one of his best performances of the season in Calgary. Uh, what can you say about how the Oilers' rookie goalie played in the Battle of Alberta? Oh, he was everything for that game. Um, you know, we mock about the three stars all being one player every once in a while, but that's one of those games where he clearly was the first, second, and third star. I know you know, McDavid or Mangiapane or whoever got those other stars. Maybe it was Richie. I can't remember. Um, Without Skinner, they don't even come close to winning that game. I don't know if you looked at any of the underlying statistics, but or analytics. And Corsi was 60 in the first period and Fenwick around the same 70 in the second period and 82 and the 85% all for the Flames. 
They absolutely, they controlled it in shots. They controlled it in possession. They controlled it in volume of shots. High danger scoring chances were 16 to six. Um, <laughs> Skinner doesn't play the way Skinner plays. That game doesn't happen. You know, without, fair to say, if Skinner isn't playing the way he's playing, the Oilers might not be in a playoff hunt right now, man. Yeah, I mean, without Skinner between the pipes, I don't think the Oilers win that game. He was superb again, and and he really needed to be, like you said. And, you know, in the three games against the Flames this season, Skinner has stopped 117 of 120 shots for a 975 save percentage. It was also hit the ninth time this season where Skinner has posted a 933 save percentage or better. And like you said, they controlled a lot of the play. They had a wide majority more shots on goal as well as shot attempts. But even though he faced a ton of rubber, I didn't think that the flames had that many quality looks after the first period. They, and they hit a couple posts on their other best chances. Um, the flames are, are a team that we know that also likes to shoot from everywhere. They rank yeah. third in the league in shots on goal per game, but they're only 22nd in the league in goals per game. So, I don't know how many chances other than that that late one that with six seconds left that rang off the post that you can say was a really dangerous look for the Flames in the third period. So I thought the Oilers did a, a good job overall of keeping most of their shots to the outside. And this was also only the second time all season that Edmonton has held an opponent to under two goals. So that's a, another big positive for this team to win a low scoring game on the road against their biggest rival. I mean, Connor said it in his post game. They want to be winning games seven six and, and five four. Uh, these are the games you got to win. You got to win the two one games, and that's that's what they did. Um, again, on the back of Skinner, you know, I, I love what you said there about him stopping 117 of the 120 shots he's faced against the Flames. Because I wanted to mention that you know the real story here isn't that the Oilers have given up. 120 shots in three games. They've actually given up 131 shots in three games against the If Flames. you include the Jack Campbell shots, yeah. For sure, right? And he gave up four goals in 11 shots versus the Flames, and Skinner has given up three goals in 120 shots versus the Flames. So a bit of a massive gap when you're talking about a 6-3-6 save percentage versus a 9-7-5 save percentage in the performance of your, your two goalies for your team. Um, needless to say, I, I'd say Stu will probably be getting the start in the playoffs versus the Flames too. prediction. Spoiler. <laughs> but, you know, the other part of that is we've given up 131 shots versus the Flames in three games. And, and whether you can keep that up and continue success is to be seen. Um, I do have a little bit of an issue and will take issue with all of this crap about the posts. Like, honestly, I'm a little bit tired of it. You know what? If how how do you lose because of a post, Flames fans? Well, there's nation or Flames Nation posted that. Like you lost because you hit the post? No, you lost because you didn't score. Like why is you Skinner covered just enough mesh as he needed to? Right? Like, how do I you think- know Skinner doesn't know that's hitting the post? Those goalies are machines, they're calibrated machines. Like, so what? You hit the post, you have better aim. I think the more frustrating thing was seeing Flames fans on Twitter, someone would retweet something and pop up on my timeline and it would say that uh, the Oilers only won because the refs helped them in that game. And I'm thinking the refs helped them. There was several pretty obvious calls that they missed. If if anything, the Oilers deserved several more power plays. Now, I'm, I will also say that the Oilers probably got away with a couple. There was the, the hold that Zach Hyman uh, had on, on the stick in the third period. But 
Um, I can think back to the first period, a couple interferences that were missed and uh, obviously a bigger one that we'll talk about in a bit. But yeah, to blame their loss on officiating, I think that that's a, or or to even say that the Oilers only won because they were gifted these power plays. I I think that's a ridiculous take. It kind of reminds you of, who was it? Oliver Shillington that said that they lost to one guy. When yeah, and which guy is that? Was that Connor McDavid, or, or was that the guy on one leg that broke five of Gretzky's records in five games against you? I mean, it could have even been Zach Hyman who set another Oilers record for scoring in five straight playoff games. Uh, Connor McDavid, like you said, who was, you know, right up there with Drysaddle as the most dominant player in the series. Drysaddle set the NHL record for most points in a playoff series. McDavid scores the game most- winner. And the series winner, yeah. Exactly. Gretzky's records, NHL records, and yeah, they got beat by one guy. I mean, really, the ultimate joke there is the one guy they got beat by was Jacob (laughs) Marks. Yeah, and that's I've heard that one a few times. I like that. (laughs) But um, you know, it's it's one of those things. It's the rivalry, right? I, I think it's pretty hard for the opposition fans to give credit to the other team a lot of the times, especially when. Uh, the Oilers have now won, I believe, four consecutive games in the Saddle Dome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they'll hopefully, if your prediction holds right, win a couple more in the playoffs this uh, coming spring. Um, and I already mentioned that Barry scored his 100th goal of his career in the win over the Flames. He had been sitting on 99 for a month. So it, it was great to see him finally hit the century mark. And, you know, he's on pace for a career-high 64 points this season. I think Barry's been an excellent fit with this group from the moment he arrived in Edmonton, but there is a portion of the fan base that thought that the Oilers should have traded him this offseason for a more defensive-minded defenseman, especially after Evan Bouchard put up 43 points as a rookie last year. I just want to know, how would you rate Barry's play so far this season, and would you like to see him be a part of this team for another couple of years? I think... Man, I'll get burnt for this. Um, I think losing Keith meant we had to keep Barry. I, I just like we'd already we'd already let. Geez, I don't. I, it was my own tweet, and I don't remember what it is. I think we let eight of our nine most elder players move on last year. Eight of our nine oldest players on the team. It was like thousands and thousands and thousands of game and man experience gone. You know, when you add up Smith and Koskinen and Keith and and Cassian and guys like Turris and right. that took thousands of games with them, you got Tyson Berry out too. You, ah, that leaves a way too young of a decor and a, on a team that already needs some help on D. And, and we all knew that. We all knew that. That's okay, right? I mean, in the pregame shows we talked about this, Eric, all of us did. We said this is... This, this is good enough to get us to the playoffs. This will get us into the playoffs and we'll get somebody at the trade deadline if we can work around the cap and and then the boys will go nuclear, right? Like this is kind of falling into plan. We're just in the bottom of a dip right now. I know you're the most positive Oiler fan up there. I'm <laughs> out there. So I'm, I'm not going to come on your show and, and be negative Nancy. I, I, I think my prediction that I gave on the pregame show is going to be true. I, I do. I think we'll get to the Flames in the second round, just like we did last year. Or maybe it ends up being in the first round, given the Flames' performance this year. But I hope it happens. I think it happens. And 
we'll blow by him like we did last time. Um, Tyson Berry has been necessary. Tyson Berry has been solid. Tyson Berry has been what we would expect him to be with a bit more. Um, you know, I, I think it's great to see him up in the top 10 and scoring for defensemen again. But he's been there before. He did that with Colorado. He's done that with Edmonton before. Um, the underlying analytics would say that he's, you know, and on the old bell curve, he might be riding a bit of a high, right? When you look at some of the expected goals for or, or his relative course, your relative Fenwick, and they're, you know, he's at a high career high of shooting percentage. There's some things there that maybe start to balance out a little bit and, you know, he reverses back to the mean. But that said, you know, how can we complain? Um, you know, nurses had his ups and downs and literally and mentally and on the ice as well. Um, you know, and CC's been okay, but not as good as last year. Kulak's been okay, but not as good as last year. So Barry's just been necessary and uh, and done a heck of a job doing it. So congratulations for 100 goals, bud. Yeah, exactly. I, I was great to see him get the milestone. It would have been even better if he could have done it on the dad's trip while uh, his old man Len Barry was there in either Nashville or Dallas. Yeah. Yeah. Gotta love Len. Gotta love Tyson. He's good in the room. So yeah. He's, he's good with he's good with this group. And, uh, you know, I know his critics will point to him losing inside position in front of the net from time to time or uh, getting caught puck watching in the defensive zone. But most. Yeah, but but I mean, most offensive defensemen aren't great in their own zone. That's just something we have to accept. But what he does better than any other defender on the team is produce points. I think that eventually, <laughs> I think eventually Evan Bouchard is going to ascend past him and become the Oilers' yeah. top offensive defenseman for a decade or longer. But as of right now, Barry is still the guy. And if they would have moved on from him last season and just banked on Bouchard to step in and take that spot, you know, he's having Bouchard's having a little bit of a sophomore slump after an excellent rookie campaign. And maybe yeah. he's missing Duncan Keith too, as you, you mentioned, um, like you, you looked at what a mentor he was for him last season. There was a 16 year age difference between Bouchard and Keith. That's probably the biggest gap in the entire league between line mates or D partners. But, you know, you look at Barry, like I said, he produces points better than anyone else on this team on the back end. He could become only the third defenseman in Oilers history to record 60 points in a single season. And the first since Paul Coffey in 1986-87. He also led the league in points among defensemen two years ago with 48 points in 56 games. And last year, in what some people consider a down year, he still had 41 points. And if you think back over the last decade, there haven't been a lot of Oilers defensemen that have put up 40 points. You know, he moves the puck well along the blue line to create different shooting angles. He gets the puck to McDavid and Dreisaitl in good spots in the offensive zone, especially on the power play. And he can comfortably break the puck out of his own zone. So even though Barry leaves much to be desired defensively, he makes up for it with his offense, in my opinion. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, there's no doubt. I think the torch just still being passed. You know, that's probably part of it. I think it's Barry's job as we move on here to take what Keith did. Um, I remember Bar uh, Bouchard actually mentioning in a postseason article that there was a particular game when Bouchard and Keith got paired last year. 
And you know how much I love Duncan Keith. You know, I've been on the yeah. rooftops in for, for a year. Um, that was his biggest contribution, I believe, to the Oilers was, was kind of teaching Bouchard how to play positionally when they got paired. That was when Bouchard really turned his season around last year. And Bouchard said in a post-season interview, Keith just told me, quite literally, cut the ice in half. That's your half. This is my half. Mm -hmm. Simple as that. And when that happened, good things came. And, um, you know, without Keith here, Barry can do that. Barry's been paired with Bouchard quite a bit this year, um, mostly with Kulak. uh, But the times he's been with Bouchard... They've actually statistically and analytically been the best pairing for the Oilers. There's far and away better, better Corsi, Fenwick, and, and relative even offensive possession-wise. Uh, Barry and Bouchard actually trend really, really well as a pair as well. Um, so, and, and actually, I checked at National Statric um, before I came on, and Barry has played with eight different partners this year. You know, and so that's that's not something too, right? Like the, it's it's a coaching role, and I think the other part of it is nurses get a, or sorry, um, Bouchard is going to be a bit of a slow developing defenseman. You know, they say that that magic games played is maybe 200 in the NHL when you really start to figure it out and you really start to get that tipping point, if you will. And, you know, Bouchard's not there yet. Um, or is he? No, not even close. So 138, there it is. So, you know, give him a whole another season and a bit before he really starts to figure it out. And I liken his game to Nuge on the back end, right? Mm. There's that ability to hold on to the puck and keep it on your stick till the absolute perfect time. A really, um, you know, kind of elusive game, uh, really good at finding lanes, really good at producing opportunities, can shoot the puck when they need to, uh, maybe a little bit too soft, but that's okay, right? Like, do you see those similarities? Yeah. Other than uh, one looks like he's 12 and the other looks like he's 42. <laughs> um, you know, I think the uh, thing is with Bouchard, the, the two the two main skills that he has that are going to make him such a valuable player on this team for the next decade is his ability to make long stretch passes. And I can just envision him setting McDavid on so many breakaways in the years to come. Uh, and also that slap shot from the blue line. And we yeah. haven't had a shot like that from the point, maybe since Sheldon Surrey was here over a decade ago. So that's what I was going to say. No doubt about it. I agree. Yeah. So when you have that much talent around him that he can distribute the puck to in the offensive zone and and allow the guys like McDavid and Drysaddle work their magic. Now having that new component where there's a, a big shot that the defense has to account for too. That's either going to open up more room for McDavid and Dreisaitl to create down low, or it's going to open up space for him up top. And, and you look at the two goals he scored against the Rangers and then the, the late game tying goal he had against the Panthers about a month ago. Both of those were just rockets from the top of the circle. And he's shown that he has this ability. It's just about maybe doing it a little more consistently now. For sure. And once he can be able to apply it to the power play full time. I think yeah, and for right now, because Barry, a top 10 offensive defenseman in the NHL for a long time. Yeah, and just bringing it back to Barry for a second, I like the idea of halfway through the power play, if they haven't scored those two switching off, just to give Bouchard some more reps with the man advantage as well. But 
you know, that group up front, I don't want to change that. I honestly think even bringing on the second unit for even the last 30 seconds decreases your chances to score. I, I, I would still almost mm-hmm. take my chances with a tired McDavid and Dreisaitl out there. Mm-hmm. For sure. I mean, they finally start to, especially with Bouchard back there, really gives them a third option because, yeah. you know, I always... I've tried to liken it to the Washington power play, right? When it was a one-trick pony with Ovi in his office, you knew where it was going. You knew that he was sneaking in from the boards, getting it at the top of the circles. Well, it's the same thing for Dreisaitl. He's just got a different office, right? It's the other circle, and it's down at the hash marks. And they do the same thing. They, like, pretend they're not even part of the play. Do-do-do-do-do. I'm just sitting here in the corner. Don't mind me. And before you know it, they're they're ready and, and loaded. Whereas... Ovi and Washington got very dangerous once Kuznetsov and John Carlson could do too. And now they've got their Kuznetsov and Carlson because the evolution of Ryan Nugent Hopkins sought this year has been phenomenal. McDavid's shooting more when Bouchard's out there. Like there's just a revolving who the hell do we cover? Yeah, it's not just, just the one timer to dry settle. I, I still think that's their best shot on the power play is the you know, the, the big one-timer from low in the right circle to dry saddle, but they have more options now that the defense can't just cheat to cover Leon. Which happened, absolutely. There's no doubt in the playoffs that started to happen where he got that attention, but I mean, what Ryan Nugent Hopkins is doing on the other side is is really like, there's a linear connection between how much he's improved his game and how we've got our power play back up to 33% again. For sure. And, and the other thing is, Yes, the Oilers do need to improve defensively. They do need to cut down the goals against. But I didn't think that Barry would be the player that would be moved out to fill that need or that void. I think the right side is pretty set for the moment. If they're if the Oilers are going to bring in another defenseman, I always figured it was going to be on the left side. You know, that gives Broberg a little more time to season in the minors and get a little more experience down there and he's been excellent when he has played in the AHL this season uh the other thing is too like if they do end up bringing in a Jacob Chikrin or if it's a another cheaper maybe more defensive defenseman type that they that they look to bring in in March that's probably going to be the third or second pairing on uh the left side that either moves Kulak down or plays below him, depending on, like I said, the caliber of player they bring in. But that, don't you agree that that's where they'll probably look to bring it? I, I don't think they're bringing in another right shot. It'll probably be a left shot guy. I wouldn't be surprised if they're able to, that they bring in one of each. That said, I would agree with you in saying the priority is on the left side and, and Broberg is the biggest part of that. And, and you nailed it. So I won't go over that again. But what I would like to see, I like first things first, Jacob Jickren, no thanks. I haven't, I've loved his game um, at times, but he's inconsistent. He's injury prone. He plays six out of every 10 games for his entire career. Um, I don't know. I just, I'd rather have the Radko Gudis or the Joel Edmondson or the, the, you know, Luke Shen on the back end that just can, settle things down when they need to create some intensity, create some intimidation, um, create some fear in the opponents to, to stay away from our crease and, and maybe have just a little bit of muscle out there to, to make sure we're not getting taken advantage of it. Just don't see how Jacob Chikrin fits any of what we really truly need. And, and that's going to be tough to fit under the cap. 
unless we're sending out a player like Pugliarvi, which maybe that happens, maybe it doesn't. All I see said, what you're I, saying. Like, you know, oh, I, sorry. I, we got to make it. We got to make it work under the cap, and that's the hard part. And his cap it isn't too big either. It's like four point six million, I think, for the next three cool. years. But they would still have to send out another player. Um, the the thing that I think with Chikrin is is that it's like you said, the injury concerns are something that the Oilers would have to take into consideration. But he's a plus player on a horrible Arizona team, so that tells me that at least when he's on the ice a lot of the damage isn't being done. And the fact that he's been producing at almost a point per game clip since he came back from injury this season, it's like there's a 24 year old defenseman who is able to produce at an elite level and is also solid defensively. I think that if they could make it work, he would be such a great fit on this team. It's just a matter of, you know, the reported asking price, you know, is it going to be two first round picks, a second and a prospect? That's just so rich. And I, I think that that's probably the biggest reason why he hasn't been traded yet is that Arizona's just asking for too much right now. And a lot of teams are probably scared, as you said, to dish out that many assets for a player who has a history of injury problems. It's not worth the opportunity cost for me, right? Like it's... First round picks are, are the Oilers very, do need to make something happen. Like this is the time with McDavid and Drysaitel in their prime. Like I'm, a, I always am a big believer in holding on to your first round picks as well, especially in a draft as deep as the 2023 draft. But if they have an opportunity to bring in a Patrick Kane or a Jonathan Taves or Jacob Chikrin this year or whoever it may be, like a uh, a player who's going to be an, an, an impact player for your roster. I, I think that you could separate with a first round pick if you're getting that type of player. For that type of player in a win now scenario, for sure. But if we have to give up Broberg and a first and Pagliarvi. Not for a rental. And- if, if it's for a player who's going to be around, then that's a different story. But not for not for a rental. And, and maybe Gudis is the player that will be a cheaper option for the Oilers to bring in. And he'd have a little more of that snarl and that physicality that you're looking for on the back end. He's not going to produce offense like a, a Chikrin will, but he might even be better defensively. And, you know, there'll be a lot of uh, opponents that'll be scared to go anywhere near the Oilers net with him on the back end. Well, and you know, Dave Manson's going to apply that guy correctly too. And yes. I think he needs a little bit of that and what Dave Manson puts out there. So, yeah, you know, I wouldn't hate to see Chicken skating around in an Oilers uniform and, and, you know, doing what he could do. But in all of that you said, as much as I don't disagree with you, the key thing you said in there is when he came back from injury this year. Mm-hmm. It's always hurt. And, like, what if that next injury is three weeks before the playoffs? Now what? Right? Like it's just Especially when you've paid that many assets. Yes, uh, that's what I mean. It's not worth the opportunity cost. I just, I think we can plug those holes in other ways. And I think that Chikrin will eventually. Somebody's going to throw nine million or eight million at him Most. on the on his next contract, just because that's what the cost for top pairing defensemen seems to be these days. Especially, you know, considering that he still has three years on his deal. So you'd be getting a value contract for that period of time. But um, it would be very tough for the Oilers to keep him beyond that if they were able to trade for him, just because even if the salary cap goes up, you're going to be 
giving a lot of that extra money that you're you're getting to McDavid and Drysidle's new contracts that will be needing to kick in at that time. So I think it, it would be like a three-year window with Chikrin before he, you know, was lost to free agency. So if you're willing to give up that much because you believe that you can win in the next three years, and I do believe that the Oilers can win in the next three years, then I, I see the reasoning behind it. But I would still also hope that if they do bring in that player, that Arizona comes down on their asking price a little bit. Yes. Yep. I still hope they shop elsewhere, but yes. I think somebody else will take this. Somebody else will get desperate. I think Chickering goes elsewhere. And in the third period against the Flames, Connor McDavid scored his league-leading 31st goal of the season, which also stood up as the game winner. McDavid now has 13 goals in as many games in December and is on pace for an incredible 71 goals this year. Dash, are we far enough into the season where you think 70 goals is realistic for McDavid? Uh, part of me hates these questions because I, I, how do you ever bet against Connor McDavid? Just 70 goals is a lot, man. That's so many goals. Like, but you know what? Just to, not to, sorry to cut you off, but I remember yeah. a month ago, he was on pace for 73 goals. And, and, you know, people were thinking like, oh yeah, you know, it's, it's November. He's on pace for 73 goals. That's, that's all fine. It's, it's going to come down here. We are a month <laughs> later in December. And he's still on pace for 71. Now we're, you know, approaching the midway point of the season and he's still scoring at this incredible clip. I mean, at, at what point does this just become reality and, and not a pipe dream? It's, you know, maybe, maybe Woodcroft said it best when the people that live at the foot of Mount Everest are just wake up and look at magistry every day <laughs> and that's like it's he's he's magic he's just magic and like we're so lucky first things first but i it's hard to i don't think he'll score 70 eric i don't i, I can't say that i i didn't think he'd score 60 when we did it on the pregame show but now i think i'm ridiculous to have said that um i'll remind you michael hubert said he wouldn't score 50 mm. uh, I also said at the pregame show that Connor McDavid will score as many goals as Connor McDavid decides he wants to score, quote unquote, because spend your training in Ontario with Austin Matthews and sit there and have your bragging rights. Like if I was Austin Matthews, I'd have brought my Richard trophy to the workouts. Well, they were training together down in Arizona, even during the pandemic. So like, I mean, the, I I sometimes wonder, did, did they pick up some things from each other? Like, did Austin work on his skating with Connor? Did Connor work on his shot with Austin? Of course. Of course. You know what? It's, it's like elite, elite players that know elite, elite things, right? Like, there's, they could have a conversation that LeBron James and Michael Jordan could have. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, maybe that's giving them too much credit, but it's, you know, Connor McDavid can't come off the street and have that conversation with you or me at supper. We don't <laughs> understand what Austin Matthews sees when he's using all the different angles of his stick and his release points and how he can fool goalies by disguising and looking things off. And man, there's like, a, a, like that's what we know about, right? Like it's, of course they're talking about it and you don't think that they're competitive about it. They're two of the best players on, on the planet. You know, he brings his Rocco Richard trophy and sets it right beside Connor while he's doing his lunge squats. 
and Connor kind of gets a little red because he's competitive and he goes, Oh yeah, I'll see. Right. I don't know. Connor McDavid does what Connor McDavid wants to do. Yeah. And I mean, right from opening night, it seemed like McDavid has been on a mission to climb from being a 40 goal scorer to a rocket Richard trophy winner. And I, I think that he will get that this year, but, it's not just about getting the Rocket Richard Trophy or getting the Art Ross Trophy. I, I'm I'm confident he'll get the Art Ross Trophy again for sure, and and the Rocket looks like it's likely as well. But I think he wants to see how high he can push these totals. And you know, many of the goals that McDavid scores are dazzling coast to coast rushes, but now he's become one of the most dangerous shooters in the league from the slot area. He's started to utilize his shot more this season and be a little more selfish when prime shooting options present themselves. And just last week, McDavid became the first player to score 30 goals before Christmas since Alex Ovechkin in 2013-14 and the first Oiler to do it since Wayne Gretzky in 1986-87. But if he scores 70 goals in a single season, that would easily be one of the greatest individual accomplishments by an NHL player in the 21st century. And for McDavid to reach the 70-goal plateau, he needs 39 goals in the final 46 games this season. And while that sounds like a daunting task, even for the best player in the world, I think McDavid has both the ability and the internal drive to score 70 this year. And a line mate that'll help him do it. I mean, not a bad decoy over there. No, and let's not forget that uh, in that interview with Elliot Friedman before the season, uh, Leon Dreisaitl told him that he had talked to Connor in the offseason and said, you need to score 60 goals this year. And it almost seems like McDavid's taken that to heart and, and come out committed to score at least 60 and possibly 70. Challenge accepted, Leo. <laughs> like we were at the beginning of this season going, yeah, you think Connor could ever win a rocket? And we're 30 games, 30, how many games later, 36 games later, and we're saying, will he ever lose the rocket? Right? <laughs> and like he, he would be, he'd be the first oiler to lead the league in goals since Wayne Gretzky again in 1986-87. And I just feel like it's time. It's, he's in the absolute prime of his career. He's always going to be a pass first guy. But I think that, you know, now that he's sort of, added this new element to his game as as a lethal goal scorer as well he's just become a complete scoring machine yeah yeah it's it's fun to watch it's incredible to watch. it's majestic so whether or not you think he's going to get to 70 do you have a, a number in mind of what you you really think that he's going to reach this year it's. I'd have to go away from my pre-season predictions of which. Yeah, I an, said an updated prediction. An updated prediction as of right now. Yeah, I thought fifty-five. You know, so if it's if it's sixty-five, that's still pretty darn impressive. If he gets sixty goals, that's pretty impressive. The key will be staying healthy. If Connor McDavid plays every game for the rest of the season, and Drysaddle's healthy, and everybody decides that they just want to make some magic. Maybe it's 50 and 50. Maybe it's maybe it's 70. I don't know. I didn't think Barry Bonds would get to 70 home runs. So, you know what I mean? Like, it's just eventually they they blow you away and it happens. So, wouldn't be surprised if you got 75. 
Ovechkin also has the most goals in a single season in the salary cap era with 65. So if Connor could get past that, that would be a pretty impressive feat to uh, have a better goal scoring season than the player who many people believe is the best pure goal scorer of all time. He is without a shadow of a doubt the best pure goal scorer. <laughs> Got 22 again this year, Eric. When's he going to slow down? I He's thought he would by 280 now. 280 pounds and has gray hair and a gray beard. And he is just pumping home goals like it's 2020 or 2012, whatever. Yeah. Year. No, I, I know what you mean. I, I figured that I, I didn't even think that he would catch Gordy Howe if he would have asked me five years ago, but he's just continued to be a, a dominant goal scorer. And even though, like, as a huge Wayne Gretzky fan, I want him to hold on to the record, it's starting yeah. to look more and more like that, even if it takes Ovi a, a couple more years, that he's eventually going to get there. I'm in the exact same canoe, buddy. There's no doubt. Yeah, I, I want Gretz to hold it, but... I do really think it's going to happen. I, I think it's just that same type. Just special people have that mentality and that drive, right? If they're going to accomplish something, they just end up accomplishing it. And it just looks like he's on that pace. Uh, the other big story to come out of the Battle of Alberta was Flames defenseman Mackenzie Weger, who uh, threw a knee-on-knee hit on McDavid. And none of McDavid's teammates responded physically, and there was also no penalty called on the play. Considering the major injury, that McDavid suffered in that same building almost four years ago, there were probably plenty of Oilers fans that were both furious and scared at the same time when Uyghur threw that dangerous hit. And it was a tight 1-1 game at the time in their last head-to-head meeting of the regular season. But Dash, does there need to be more of a response from the Oilers when something like that happens to their captain? The ghost of Mark Niordano entered Mackenzie Neger. Ugh, don't even say his name. It's, uh, I thought it was broken down. Okay, well, first things first. I thought it was broken down very well by Josh Bolton from Tough Call. Um, anybody who has a chance, um, Tough Call on YouTube breaks down that hit and slows it down, reverses angles. And as he always does, he does a brilliant job of kind of I don't know, slowing it and and showing, you know, where skates are pointing and why and how, you know, Uyghur really did do everything in his best effort to just kind of not get burnt. (laughs) I mean, he he got roasted is what happened. And we saw that against Elder or sorry, Edler earlier in the season where he could see that Connor was going to make a, a lateral move on him and and burn him wide. And instead, what does he do? He sticks out his knee at the last second because he knows that that's the only way he's going to be able to take away the ice from Connor. And it just, Darnell Nurse did respond physically that time, but it's just, how how can we just let these go by that just because he's faster than everyone else, it's almost like an excuse for them to try and throw these dangerous hits. And that's the other half of it, right? We could sit here and debate whether Uyghur threw a knee or not. Um, I'm not even fully convinced he did. I think he got, should have got two minutes for tripping, like Tough Call said, and maybe that's a, a, a staunch take. But the key thing that you're bringing up is that we can't open up the door and leave a you know signed invitation for people to walk in and be able to do whatever they want to the two best players on our team. And, um, 
you know, the response, it's, it's necessary. It's hockey. I'm sorry. I mean, it, it's been till the end of time. I'm sure hockey's been cleaned up and fighting's been decreased and intimidation is 100% the part of the game. 120% part of the game. The St. Louis Blues won a Stanley Cup on intimidation. It, it, it's, it's absolutely necessary, and we can't have Darnell Nurse as our number one defenseman. Like it or not, he is. And you can't have him breaking hands. You can't have him in the penalty box. Yeah. He's your number he one penalty He can't fight as player. much as he used to. And maybe For that's, sure. and to go back to your earlier point, maybe that's where bringing in a guy like Gudis or, you know, finding another fourth line cheap option who could step up in the absence of Cassian as well, where, where someone is going to be willing to drop the gloves in these situations. I also think that there would have been more of a response if the Oilers were, let's say, six points higher in the standing and maybe had a 3-1 lead in that game. But when it's when it's a tight hockey game and you're battling for a playoff position with your biggest rival, you can't t- afford to take a penalty in that situation by retaliation. And, you know, instead, the Oilers got their own power play shortly thereafter and McDavid scored on it. So making them pay on the scoreboard is better, in my opinion, too. Absolutely. Uh, That's where poetic. you really hurt them. We score on one out of every three power plays with a 33% success rate. And that was our third power play. Poetry in motion, just like it was just like it was drawn up. Without a doubt. And, you know, it, when you were on this podcast uh, last year, we talked about the Oilers having a chance to break the NHL record for the highest power play percentage in a single season. They ended up finishing third in the league on the man advantage in 2021-22 after leading the league in each of the previous two seasons. But as of right now, the Oilers have the highest power play percentage in NHL history at 32.3% ahead of the 1977-78 Montreal Canadiens who finished with a 31.9%. Dash in your opinion, do the Oilers have the most lethal power play the game has ever seen? I do think so. And I mean, statistically and meets the eye test for me. Ultimately, you know, we were, what, they were breaking the 30 to 35 year old record when they had a 29.5 in 1920. Was that? Yeah, 1920. Get that year mixed up because of COVID, but right. And then they, like you said, they dropped down to third place. I can't remember what it was 27, 28%, and 20. Yeah, I think it was 21. right around 27. And here we are, right? 32.3. We're hovering at 33%. Um, you know, I, I hinted at it earlier, and I'll say it again. Um, I really believe the success of the power play this year, and, and it's gotten better, is a linear connection with the improvement of Ryan Nugent Hopkins' game. He's he's developed a third threat with a shot um, on the other side of the ice. I don't know if many play the half wall on the power play as as well as Nuge. Um, you know, we mentioned it when we compared his game with Bouchard that he he protects the puck so well. He just you know, mm-hmm. Josh, a tough call, and I were talking about this in, in a side conversation earlier, <clears throat> and you know, watching him break down the flames penalty kill on his channel. Again, he just does such a great job of, of slowing things down and showing how well Nuge is at creating opportunities and, and how he just, he, he doesn't lose the puck. He's the perfect he, compliment for the two best players in the world. He's so sure handed 
And he's a power play specialist. He has been all going back all the way to his junior days. This is where he really thrives. Is phenomenal at creating space. Phenomenal at creating space. And so when you're creating, you know, all you need is an extra second in the NHL, right? That's all you need. And when you're creating that much, when you're one of the best players at creating space for your teammates on the power play and your teammates on the power play are 29 and 97, you're destined to have the most lethal power play in the history of hockey. Yeah. That's write it down and, and you hear it here first. Eric Friesen and Dash in the park will have the power play in the history of hockey by the end of the season. I mean, just with McDavid and Dreisaitl alone, you have a pretty good foundation right there. The two best offensive players in the league, both in their mid-20s at their peak abilities. Now you're adding in, like we said, Nugent Hopkins, who's such a good puck handler and passer. If you have a Vander Kane or Zach Hyman as your net front presence, both of them are excellent goal scorers. You know, they uh, Evander's a little bigger and stronger, but Zach Hyman, man, he's like a dog on the bone in front of the net. Like he will just battle till the very last second till he hears that whistle. His puck retrievals. Yeah. So having him on the power play, you know, adds a factor as well. That that type of uh, tenacity in front of the net, and then. Just like we talked about earlier in the podcast, if you have a guy like Barry or Bouchard manning the point, well, that's just another weapon for you. So it's no surprise at all that right now they're running at over 32% and have, as it stands, the best power play in NHL history. It's kind of funny, though, if you look back at the Gretzky-era Oilers, there's only one of those teams that's in the top 10 all-time for power play percentage, and that was the 82-83 Oilers. They currently rank 8th all-time at 29.3%. Are you ever surprised just that the 80s Oilers, the most dominant offensive team, the most creative team of all time, didn't have a higher power play percentage? I think probably, honestly, what that comes down to is the clutching and grabbing. Hmm. You could, that's you a good could. point, too. Right, you could drag a water boat behind you and water ski on guys back in the '80s. So that was, I probably think, the biggest separation. I think if you put the '80s Oilers, you know, all relative skill in the vacuum, and you put apply these rules to today's NHL, they they might have had a 50% power play. And I'm not kidding. So the Oilers also did a lot of their damage off the rush too, and maybe maybe having all that time to set up in the offensive zone. I, I mean, with Gretzky passing it to Curry and, and having Messi out there and coffee, I mean, you're you're set up for success right there. But I, I honestly think because they were such a counterattack team that, like I said, created a lot of their chances flying yeah. down the ice, maybe the power play wasn't their specialty at that time. Yeah, and it's, again, hard to compare because it's a different game. Like you said, the scoring came off the rush, and I remember it fondly. Now, today, is it's setting up off the cycle, right? I mean, maybe the 80s Oilers power play wouldn't have been all that successful if they'd have had to set up on the cycle versus Jamie McCowan and Jim Poplinski. So, I, I don't know, right? Gary Suter, throw that in the mix. Um, so, they scored how they had to, and, and we score how we have to. They still had some great percentages, though. Like, I'm looking at 84, 85, 85, 86. They were right around 25, 26%, which is still an elite power play. It's just a a few notches below where this year's power play is right now. And and Wayne Gretzky even said that on an Oilers broadcast last season, that he thought that 
the current era Oilers with McDavid had a better power play than his era? Well, the 2020 power play is how you set up and how you create gaps, how you use your lanes. And the 80s power plays were more of just an extension of real hockey, right? It was a lot of creating odd man rushes and getting shots and rebounds and, and creating high danger scoring chances. So I, I just have a hard time throwing them back and forth like that. The way that I see that this being the best power play in the history of hockey is what if I put it to you this way? I mean, here, you have the entire pool of NHL players in front of you, and I want you to build a power play from all the best players in the entire NHL, okay? Who do you want playing center? Well, probably on Dreisaitl. Well, well I mean, d- depending on where you swap them. I know Connor usually kind of plays the point on the power play, but I see what you're saying. Right, so which goal scorer do you want in there? Well, let's take the league's leading goal scorer this year, Connor McDavid. Okay, well, who's the best passer in the league? Who else... Who's the second player you take on that power play? That's probably Leon Dreisaitl. Oh, who's who's the best net front presence? Who has the most energy in the NHL? Who is the straw that stirs the drink that you want bouncing in, retrieving pucks, and going to the net? Hmm, probably Zach Hyman. You just said it when he was in Toronto. Yeah. Oh, who's the best half-wall player? Who's the most creative, patient, calm player that makes his teammates better around him at all times? Hmm. Like. There's guys like Nuge, but Nuge, honestly, like, and then maybe you go to somebody else on D, but you've got probably the four best players at their respective positions on the power play that all play for the Oilers. And that's a great point too. And and who knows, like if the Oilers are able to trade for Patrick Kane at the deadline, which has been rumored for six months now, although Bob Stoffer was sort of hinting more recently that he thinks that Jonathan Taves has sort of switched to the Oilers target instead of Patrick Kane. And I, and I think Taves as a third line center would be a, an excellent choice for Edmonton as well. But if Patrick Kane came to Edmonton and this is all just hypothetical, but who would he knock out of there? Because you're not going to bring Kane in and not have him on the power play. You know, you'd hate for someone like Nuge to get pushed out. Maybe you actually just keep Nuge there and, and a guy like Hyman loses his spot there, but that would, you know, that might even decrease from the power play. Who knows? They might try that out and say, oh, we have too many passers out there. It actually helps to have a guy who's going to grind a little bit in front of the net. You either go with five forwards and just watch the magic happen, <laughs> sprinkle some pixie dust on it and say, go ahead. Or you load up Evander Kane, Patrick Kane, and Bouchard on a second power play. Yeah. And, and you know what? I said earlier that what I fun tools to have at your disposal. Yeah, and I do like it when Jay Woodcroft gives the Oilers' first unit the whole two minutes, and, and hopefully they don't need it because they're going to score. But when you would have a, another option like a Patrick Kane, then if you throw him out there with a Dylan Holloway up front or Jesse Pugliarvi, you start to feel a lot better about that second unit too. For sure. Absolutely. Yeah, there's, it, it would be fun to see, to be honest. It, I, I'm not sure how realistic it is, and we admitted that's pie in the sky, but yeah, uh, you never know with hockey. My gut says Patrick Kane goes to the New York Rangers. Hmm. If we could get somebody like Taves with that experience, like I mean, that's your new, that's your new Keith. And you, you know, think that Keith working for the? Backlog. Yeah, and and with Keith being an Oilers employee and working for them as in, in player development, do you think that maybe he 
calls up his old buddy and says, hey, Taves, you know, I, I really uh, loved playing in Edmonton last year. I think you'd like it too. And it sort of sells him on coming here. I'd be shocked if that already hasn't happened. Or wink, wink, nudge, nudge, their wives have talked. <laughs> Like it's, of course that happens. There's no doubt. And of course, Holland would ask Keith to feel those things out. That's kind of one of the positions he would be in and the advantages he'd have of still being one of the good old boys. Um, have you happened to look at the face-off percentage leaders in the NHL recently? I haven't looked at it probably since earlier in the season. Jonathan Taves, 65%, and nobody else is above 55, I wow. don't think. Maybe somebody was 56. Yeah, so, I thought Leon was right around 55, 56 a while ago, but... He was 54. Yeah. yeah. So that he just would dropped be, that. <laughs> I mean, that alone, and when you add in... 65%. That might be yeah. the highest in the last 20 years. Uh, maybe Do you remember Ryan anybody having... I'd have to yeah. look. I'd have to look where O'Reilly would be at, but uh, that would be right up there. And um, man, like it, it, you bring Taves in with his strong two-way play, his veteran experience. I just think, even though the Oilers did learn a lot of lessons getting to the conference final last year, having a guy who's been on so many deep playoff runs and won three cups, the leadership mm-hmm. that he would bring, plus being that steady third-line center that now allows you to have Nuge on the wing if you want, or you know you, you could you could keep him on the third line with Taves as as one of his wingers. You could bump him up to the second line on Leon's wing. There, there's so many options, and it makes your forward group even that much better because you're going to get Kane back around the the or even before the trade deadline. So, right. uh, and I think your your bottom six becomes a lot stronger too. That has been an ongoing issue for the Oilers this year: a lack of production from their, their bottom two lines. Um, but we, we've seen glimpses where they'll have a stretch of three games where you get a little bit of production from the bottom six, but then they'll disappear for another eight to 10 games. And having two guys like Nuge and uh, Taves on your third line and maybe Dylan Holloway on the other wing, I, I think that you're, you're just starting to see a, a much stronger looking bottom half of the roster. I'd love to see it. I, I'm all in. <laughs> I, I honestly, I would love that. And it also allows you to do more of the good because Radko Gudas type stuff on the back end. Yeah. So, you know, put keep, put Seabrook in a hyperbaric chamber, whatever. <laughs> and you know what, Dash, as great as it was to see the Oilers beat the Flames this week, uh, unless these teams meet in the playoffs again, as you predicted, this will be the final battle of Alberta until the 2023 Heritage Classic 10 months from now. Given how exciting that playoff series was last year, do you think the NHL schedule makers need to do a better job than giving us only three games between the Oilers and Flames this year and playing all of them before New Year's Eve? Well, it was odd, hey? You know, and it was kind of, it's a calamity of of oddities. Is that really all I can say? You know, there's there's a guy that makes the schedule for the NHL. I can't remember his name offhand. Um, but he's been doing it for 20 years. He's considered one of the higher management level people for the NHL. And he's from Montreal. His name's escaping me, but he's the one who finalizes the NHL schedule every year. And it is weird. And the timing is maybe the most weird or oddity thing of it. 
But it is actually just the mathematical formula of how things are going to be moving forward with Seattle being in the division and now having um, 16 teams in the Western Conference. Because of the even division and even conference, it made that we couldn't play four games against every single one of our division rivals. So once Seattle entered the league, it now goes on a mathematical um, algorithm of two of every seven years, we will only play three games against the Flames. Two of every seven years, we will only play two games against the Canucks, or three games against the Canucks, pardon me. So what happened last year is Seattle was the team that we only played three times. So everybody kind of just went, meh, right? Like it didn't really quantify. So the first oddity of all of this is this falls on one of the cycles for twice in every seven years that this will happen. The other oddity is that the only game in Edmonton is the second game in the year, right? There's going to be 39 more games played in Rogers place after the flames visit. And none of them are from Alberta. And the other oddity is that you played all three of them by December. Right. And then for Edmontonians, the, uh, another oddity layered on is that we only got one game here. So all of that with the cherry on top being that we had one of the most entertaining playoff rounds of all times is just like, maybe that schedule maker could have waited till next year for that algorithm to go to the two of seven. Right. So I don't know. It it was very much an oversight, but I honestly find the entire other schedule a little bit odd this year. There's, being a season ticket holder, I noticed considerably that there's a lot less weekend games this year. Uh, the Saturday games especially have dropped off in number. I would say there's maybe four or five less this year. So it's just been an odd year all around, to be honest. Yeah. It's a fail by the NHL without a shot. Uh, I mean, I, I know how they want to do this, right? With There's a certain number of teams in the division you're going to play four times and a certain number three times. But you'd think that Calgary and Edmonton should always be one of the matchups that play four times. I mean, just, I, I don't think they spaced it out well at all either. Give us two games early in the season and two down the stretch right before the playoffs when they mean so much. Can you imagine how intense those That's games are? That's a home and home. Yes. And and even if you want to spread them out and have one in March and one in April, just those games, one in each building would be like playoff atmospheres, basically at that point. So I think they kind of robbed us of some exciting hockey games, first of all. And look, I'm not complaining that the Oilers won the season series and, you know, it was a it was a big regulation win against the Flames. But I, I just think that it, it was a, a pretty poor decision by the NHL to have all of them this early, especially when you want to have two in the first month. And it's like, well, we're like 10 games into the season. The Oilers and Flames only play one more time. So that was a mistake. Uh, let's hope that next year they arrange it a little bit better. And like we we've, we haven't even played the Sharks once yet. We've played uh, Anaheim one time. There's so many other divisional games that they haven't played yet. And I actually like the Bruce McCurdy solution. Take two games from the preseason, add them into the regular season, and with 84 games, you can play everybody four times, everybody in the Central three times, and everybody in the other in the Eastern Conference two times. I would be in favor of that 100%. And the NHL did expand to 84 games for two years in the 90s before they went back to 82. Um, And I mean, 
what really is two more games? I mean, I'm sure the Players Association. The preseason game, anyways. Yeah, and look, the the PA is probably going to push back a little bit and say, well, you know, we have to draw a line on the number of games we're playing at some point. But think about how much money there is to be made. Uh, two extra games, one extra home date for every NHL club. It, it just it makes sense, and for players like McDavid, and there's only one of him, but for for any elite players that are chasing milestones like 50 goals, 100 points, having those two extra games, it just gives you even a little more runway to hit those marks. Have all the proceeds from those extra two games go straight to escrow and see how fast the NHLPA signs off on it. Yeah, especially with the escrow they have to pay back too, right? So I mean... Well, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, for sure. There's a way to do it. There's always a way. It's about the money. It's always about the money. (laughs) But uh, yeah, I, I mean, I am looking forward to some of those games because despite where the Oilers are in the standings, and I think that's a good time for us to kind of like turn over to talking about that right now. They're sitting four games over 500. The, the, the flames leapfrogged them again last night after beating the Seattle Kraken, but they're right there. I mean, they're, they're within striking distance still of LA and Seattle ahead of them for second or third in the division. And I'm still confident the Oilers will finish in second in the Pacific. It looks like Vegas is going to be pretty tough to catch at this point, but I'm not overly scared of, uh, either the Kings or the crack. And I I think the Oilers are a better team than both of them. And once they get healthy and the schedule gets a little lighter because dash we've both watched this season so far, the the first half was loaded with cup contenders and division leaders and top teams. Now the Oilers also have blown games against teams. They should beat. They lost to St. Louis when they had a two goal lead in the third period. They lost to one of the worst teams in the league, Anaheim on home ice on a matinee. Uh, they just dropped a a game where they had a two-goal lead against the Canucks in the first period last week. I mean, these are games where the Oilers could easily have six more points than they do right now. They even uh, gave up a point to Nashville in overtime. But they've beaten teams like Carolina. You know, they've beaten Tampa. They've beaten Pittsburgh. They've, they've shown that they can handle these top teams in the league. Um, it's just a matter of now, you know, when they start to get to play, the odd, you know, weaker team. They haven't played Philly yet. They haven't played Columbus or Chicago. And the, I'm not necessarily saying that the Oilers need to bank on playing weaker teams to improve their record. They've shown they can beat good teams too. It's just, I mean, even Dallas. They, they, they. It's, it's, it's very strange to me, and that just kind of speaks to the roller coaster ride that this season's been. That they beat Dallas in one of their most complete efforts of the season by three goals, and then they just come back with a stinker the very next game on home ice against Vancouver. But if, if they can avoid playing down to their competition is what I'll say and take advantage of one of the easier schedules, the rest of the way, I believe they had the second most difficult schedule in the first half and they have the third easiest schedule in the second half, make some hay there, build that record back up and, and get geared up for another playoff run. Yeah, you know, you said roller coaster. Remember the roller coaster last year? <laughs> it was different that was the though. You know, like coaster we ever had, and and here we are again. And you're right, you're right. But you know, peaks and valleys are, are new are nothing new to this it. team. <laughs> exactly. Do you think that we play down to our competition, 
Or do you think that we just have a problem with letting the fight come to us before um, we bring the fight? That's part of it. I mean, Crazy. slow starts are, are a factor. Inclusive? It is a factor, but when when there's nine minutes left in a game against St. Louis and you have a three one yeah. lead, you need to lock that down. When it's two nothing to start the second period against the Canucks, that's a yeah. game that you have to make sure you take to the finish line. And sometimes yeah. you just get goalied by a team, right? Like they got goalied by Buffalo, they got goalied by Anaheim. Um, yeah. It's it's going to happen from time to time. It's it's just I do think that they they get up to play the top teams in the league, and we've seen that. And sometimes, like you, you they they'll walk over Arizona eight to two, and then Anaheim comes to town, and you think it's going to be another one of those laughers. But in reality, those players still have pride too, and they're NHL players, and you can't just come in and say, "Well, you know, we're going to steamroll these guys." You have to prepare for that game just like any other. Yeah, there's no doubt. It only just stings slightly less because Kessler isn't there anymore. That's all I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> I do love that the Oilers have beat up on the Ducks a lot in the last few years. I mean, it it, it sort of has made up for uh, a lot of the the pain that the Ducks dished out to the Oilers, let's say in the late 2000s, early 2010s. Well, nothing's going to make up for the 2017 playoffs. I mean, that's the number <laughs> one. Yeah. Um, I, I do think that the Oilers exercise some demons by getting to the conference final this past year because they deserve to go to the conference final in 2017. They had to wait another five years to get there, but uh, it it finally happened for them. Yeah. And who would have thought it'd been five more years in facts, right? Well, Well, let's just keep, let's hope they do it for the next five years. Yeah. I, I mean, this team is set up to have several deep playoff runs over let's say, like you said, five to 10 years. And hopefully at least one of those seasons uh, ends with the Oilers winning their last game. Absolutely. Hallelujah. Uh, Dash, before we call it a night, I just wanted to talk a little about Sam Gagne, who played in his 1000th NHL game tonight. And actually his Winnipeg Jets did the Oilers a favor by beating the Vancouver Canucks four to two. You know, Gagne was a player who was a sixth overall pick for this team. He was viewed from the start as one of the players who was going to turn around an Oilers club that had bottomed out in 2006, 2007 and traded away Ryan Smith. He never quite reached that level of a top line star producing player that I think the Oilers thought they might be getting with him at sixth overall in 2007. But he was just a heart and soul guy who could produce 45 points for you year after year and was just someone who was so loved by his teammates. He he would fight when he you know, he didn't even have to and, and he was ill-equipped to. But this was a guy yeah. who just gave it all for the team, loyal to the Oilers. And I, I think that of all the uh, of any active Oilers player that's still in the league that's that's moved on to another team. He would have to be right up there with one of the most popular. And I wish that he would have spent his whole career as an oiler. But I just want to get a thought or two from you on uh, Gagne's time in Edmonton and just his career overall. Yeah. When, I mean, my brother still makes fun of me for him being one of my all-time favorite players. So, I mean, I'm s- super happy we are going to talk about this. Um, you know, I'm, I'm old enough to remember watching Dave Gagne. So... You know, I I know where that competitive spirit comes from. I know where that fire comes from. 
Dave Gagne was never the biggest guy in a fight. And I doubt, I doubt that his son is either. Like it's, it's just been a, I don't know, too bad that he maybe didn't reach some of the offensive potential, but he's played a thousand games in the league and very yeah. few people can say that. So, you know, a testament to finding a way, um, similarly to how his kid line, um, centerman, Andrew Cogliano did the same. Um, you know, that was along with Nielsen was, was the line to be when, when Ryan Smith was gone and that was going to be our future. So, you know, he comes out of London, what him and him and Kane had, 300 points or something on the yeah, same line, between them. 250 points or something crazy like that. So all projections stated. So, right. He's the son of a, of a, an amazing player. And, you know, it just turned out that he had to change his game. Um, I was at the eight point night versus Chicago. Oh, wow. uh, one of our customers actually took us to a suite that game. Uh, so my tum tum was not only full of the warm and fuzzies, it was full of some beer and chicken wings. <laughs> And one of the greatest nights I can ever remember in that rink. Um, I'll never forget that my colleague that I went with, um, because the game was a blowout, wanted to beat the traffic and left early. Oh, wow. <laughs> Just like classic all-time fail. Yeah. Um, never leave really, early. <laughs> never, oh, never. Just awesome. In fact, I'll sidebar for a story since you love mine so much, but I'm stealing this one. I was just on vacation, as you know, and I was reading the book Beauties by James Duffy. And this reminds me of why you would never and should never leave a game early. But at the World Junior Championship, when Jordan Everly scores the, the famous goal that he did versus the Russians, the score was fourth, third period. And I think his name was Dmitry Petrov or something scores for the Russians to go up 5-4 with about 45 seconds left, as we all remember. And uh, at that point in time, I think Duffy said his parents were 80 years old or north of 80 years old and uh, hated driving in traffic and hated driving in the dark. So what James did is, you know, look up over his dad who was watching the game in the, in the TSN booth with him and said, you know, maybe this is a good time for you to beat traffic. You know, the Russians are up here. They got the momentum. Um, you know, you'd probably be safe to go to your car now. And so, of course, they listen to their son and Mr. and Mrs. Duffy take off to the car while Jordan Everly scores one of the most exciting goals in Canadian history and the Canadians go on to beat the Russians in overtime. So when uh, James got home, he asked his dad what he thought of the game and how it finished. And apparently uh, James Duffy's dad's answer to him was clearly, I should have stopped having kids after your two older sisters. <laughs> so, <laughs> another reminder of why you never leave a game early. You just never know what's going to happen, right? Yeah. Everybody knows that game from Sam and the eight points, and I'll never let my colleague live that down. But one of my favorite memories from Sam Gagne actually came at another time. It was against the Islanders. I think it was early in the year in 2019. And I was at that game as well. And it was Sam Gagne's first goal back, back with the way Oilers. Yeah. And man, go back and watch it after we're done. The emotion on his face looked like he scored the clenching goal to make it to the playoffs. Like he was just, you could tell the way that his teammates celebrated with him and how important it was for him. And and I, I don't know, that one kind of sticks with me too. I think it was late in the 2018-19 season. It was about a week after he had rejoined the team because I believe they were on the road when the yeah. trade happened. Um, yeah. He he was playing in the AHL with the Toronto Marlies. He'd, he'd been loaned there by the Vancouver Canucks. And uh, 
Yeah, and then when they dealt him for Ryan Spooner, I feel like he he got a a rent a car and 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 drove down to uh, wherever the Oilers <laughs> were playing in the U.S. at the time, maybe Buffalo. So that was a uh, you know yeah, it's funny you point that goal, the Islanders, yeah. But that that's that's a good point that you make about that first goal back at uh, Rogers Place. Uh, actually, his first goal ever at Rogers Place as a member of the Oilers. Um, because he had been traded back when they were still playing at Rexall. So uh, it, it just it, it looked like a, a a great moment for him. I remember his first hat-trick against the Avalanche back, I want to say, in 2009. Um, uh, you know, and, you know, he was a guy, like we talked about, he'd step up and fight, you know, when when he probably wasn't the, the, the first guy who, who should have been jumping in there. And just all the shootout moves, like, just, I... I, I can't even think of one particular one. Maybe there was one against the Minnesota Wild the first time that he he busted out that insane move that he has, where he goes like forehand, backhand, forehand. But it's just he he gave us so many cool moments. The the eight point night in twenty twelve is always going to stand out above the rest. But just you know, this is a guy who who really bled orange and blue. And uh, I mean, I would still love if he could finish his career in Edmonton, whether he signs a one day contract to retire as an oiler or, or whatever happens. But, um, you know, uh, it's, he's a guy who obviously loved his time here. And I mean, he married an Edmonton girl. There was that picture back in the summer where he was, uh, he had his Oilers shirt still draped over his exercise bike. So, I mean, even in the off season when he's a, an unrestricted free agent, and he's wearing his old Oilers gear still. It just it shows that uh, this this team is still holds a, a place in his heart. Yeah, man. The Edmonton Oilers fans always love those heart and soul. Once an Oiler, always an Oiler. Guys, right? I, he's in the same class as Ryan Smith and Jason yeah. Smith and Bucky and some of those guys that'll just you know never go away in our hearts. When you become that good of a teammate and that good of a human, you know, honestly, just. Congratulations, Sam. It's it's a hell of a way to get a thousand games. Absolutely, yeah. He's just great guy. You know, someone I've followed from his entire career. You know, we're both born in 1989, so he always wore the 89 in the back of his jersey. I loved that, uh, and just uh, you know, uh, probably outside of Ryan Smith, maybe the guy who bled, like we said, orange and blue more than anyone else over the last like decade and a half. Uh, uh, and you know what else? I've only been to one Oilers game this year and I didn't, I don't even think I knew that you were a season ticket holder. So maybe we'll have to run into each other at a game sometime this year. Did you go to the Ryan Smith game? I did. That's the only game I've been to yeah, so that's far the this one. year. We almost, I thought we tried and planned, but we were on the opposite we end tried. of the ring. Yeah. You were up high and I was down low and I don't know. It, it just, yeah. But we'll, you know, what we'll do is make it happen where you're sitting right beside me in our seats. That's the way we'll do it. <laughs> yeah. It'd be great to go to a game with you sometime. I love that you're Sam Gagne's draft year and I'm Ryan Smith's draft year. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> hey, and and neither of us got picked, hey? Yeah, weird. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I, I could have been Bond Senior well, for all that mattered to the Oilers. <laughs> you had a little better shot Why of getting there than me? I did, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, man. Well, thanks so much. Uh, for anyone who, uh, isn't following you already. And I, I hope that everyone is, where can they find you on Twitter? At dash in the park on Twitter, dash in the park on Facebook. It'll work too. Uh, just go to happyhockey.com. That's where you can find all of us. And 
especially Eric and I, us two Saskatchewanians that love to sit down and talk hockey because we actually know our hockey, you know, <laughs> like those Haligonians and hooligans on the rest of our network. But no, I'm just kidding aside. Um, all the boys are great. So heavyhockey.com, that's where you'll find me, Eric, and the rest of us. Awesome. All right, Dash, have a good night. You too, Eric. Thanks again for doing this with me, buddy. Appreciate it. So for Dash in the Park, I'm Eric Friesen. This has been the 99 Forever Podcast. We're out.